Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I am Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Always glad to be with Hannah Heinziger of the Mennonite Magazine, Inc. and website. Hannah, what's going on today? Hey, not too much, Jason. We're recording this on a Friday, and I am happy it is a Friday. It's good to be here with the three of you. And that mystery third person today is uh, our esteemed guest. We're, we're very excited to be talking to Melody Panel. And she wears a lot of hats. She is a assistant professor of social work at uh, EMU, Eastern Mennonite University. She has other responsibilities at the university. She's involved in her church. She's involved in various ministries that we are going to get a, a peek of here today. Melody, thanks so much for joining us. You are very welcome. It is glad to be here. And I'm also glad it's a Friday. That's right. So we can agree on that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we've got a quorum and uh, we all agree. <laughs> Hey, but before we get into things, Melody, yeah, let me give you a chance maybe to, to help straighten out all those hats. Can you give us maybe give our listeners a little bit more of an of a introduction to who you are? Sure, I would love to. So I am serving as assistant professor of social work here at Eastern Mennonite University. And um, I also, with that role, serve as director of field placement for social work and a chairperson for the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion here at EMU. Um, so that was, that's uh, some of my roles here at the university. And then um, one of the roles that I do have at uh, EMU in the past, you say, in the Harrisonburg community is a uh, chairperson for religious affairs of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. So those are some other civic things that I do as well. Wonderful. Well, Melody, I um, have enjoyed getting to know you at Hope for the Future events, and now that you've joined the Mennonite Board, so glad to have you there, too. But I loved an interview that Regina Shan-Stolzfus did with you, kind of telling your story for the Anabaptist Historians blog. And one of the things she talked about there was that you grew up at 7th Avenue Mennonite Church in Harlem, New York, and I know that you've also talked and written a little bit about not seeing your own experiences or those of your friends in your church represented in the Mennonite press, places like the Mennonites and in broader Mennonite conversations. So I wonder if you'd start by just telling us a little bit about your congregation and what you felt was kind of missing from these denominational conversations. Absolutely. So I grew up there at 7th Avenue in, um, in Harlem, New York, and my father was actually the first African-American pastor that was licensed and ordained in Lancaster Mennonite Conference. And, um, you know, of course, with history, like I said, conference started those, started five churches in New York City, 7th Avenue being one of them, mm-hmm. um, growing up there. So my, my father was uh, the minister there. My mother was in ministry as well and did a lot of things within the community. Um, I used to always look at the mission, missionary messenger and the Gospel mm-hmm. Herald and <laughs> when I was younger and just was really interested in the work of the church. Um, but one thing that was missing as I compared what was happening in the mission of the Mennonite Church uh, globally or even in other places that I didn't see the presence and I didn't see the commitment um, and definitely not the resources for the Mennonite churches in New York City and in my Mennonite Church. In 1974, 7th Avenue Mennonite Church had a fire in the building. Mm. and. Um, it really took out not just the church, but the apartments that were above the church that was providing housing for community members and even church members. That building was not restored and resources were not put into that space. And not until 2016 did we actually have the space restored and able to have um, 
the future of the church there, and then also the apartment buildings, 13 apartments uh, for the community. And so that is just one example out of many where I did not see the presence of the church, the commitment to the urban churches mm-hmm. that uh, was started in the Mennonite uh, church as, as plant churches, but were not sustained in the commitment in, in my, in my uh, experience uh, was not there. Yeah. Those are some of the things as well. I think also I wanted to bring up, I do a lot of talking with my father about his experience within the Midnight Church and as African-American male. And um, he also had a vision when he was the pastor to try to bring the Mennonite uh, church and culture and theology to Harlem, uh, which was many of the people in Harlem were not familiar with the Mennonite church. Um, if they thought about Mennonites, they thought about the Amish community or something that was just very remotely different and, and not really tangible. And so he had a vision of creating the Harmeno Youth Center. The Harmeno Youth Center, bringing Harlem, Mennonite, and Harmony. I mean, he had this whole proposal that he gave to Eastern Mennonite uh, Boards of Missions during that time. This was probably then in the 19, uh, maybe 1970 or so. Because there was an abandoned building near, this is before the fire, abandoned building right next to, adjacent to our building that we could have incorporated, maybe purchased and brought this, brought this uh, expanded the church and created a youth center. Now, logistics, of course, and maybe, some, maybe it may or may not have been the best business deal, um, but it surely could have made a huge difference in the trajectory of the Harlem community, even as we look at what could have happened now if we did make that move um, those years ago. Yeah. And it seems like that entrepreneurial spirit is something that, that you have as well, because you started a ministry at your church that's grown into, into something even more. Uh, it's called Destiny's Daughters, and it's focused on empowering and supporting young African-American w- women. Can you tell us more about how that got started? Absolutely. Um, that entrepreneurial spirit and that ministry from um, ministry calling for my father and my mother. When I was in uh, Harlem growing up, I saw the disparities. I saw the crisis that we had in Harlem, the epidemic. We were just coming out of the heron age, um, again, when I was a child, and then going right in the 80s into uh, the HIV epidemic, the crack, uh, the crack era with crack um, substance abuse issues happening. Of course, poverty was a very prominent cycle that was taking place. And in the 90s, we had uh, another epidemic that took place with teenage girls. And this was focusing on the high rates of teenage pregnancy. And so uh, we had in our news stories, young women who were mostly African-American and and Latina, but were having babies at a very young age, but were dumping them in the dumpsters. So this, this epidemic of dumpster babies is what the news was calling this. Well, they would find babies who were still living that were, someone had dumped in the garbage cans and the trashes throughout the cities. And this was a regular occurrence. And so it was really a correlation to poverty, an issue of teenage pregnancy that was going on, epidemic there. And so between all those ideas, I really looked at how can I help the teenage girls that are in the community? And then it also um, encouraged me to do that through the ministry of Camp Deer Park. And so Camp Deer Park was a ministry that started in 1969 uh, for New York City, Mennonite children and youth. And I served there in 1990 as a counselor during my vacation for work. And 
in 10 days totally changed my life. I also was able to hear stories of the young girls that were in foster care that had to deal with um, child abuse. Again, you know, we're not having a community outreach with regards to a church in the area. And I just felt led to start what was called first the Seventh Avenue Mennonite Girls Group at my church and decided to do that. Um, to talk about issues of sexuality, self-esteem, mm -hmm. spiritual formation, practical theology, and look yeah. at what's happening right now and how can we um, help prevent young women from becoming addicted to drugs, to dealing with broken families, to deal with issues of um, teenage pregnancy, but to develop a relationship with God. And most of these girls were not uh, raised in the church, and so we did an outreach to them and started having them come to the church, providing programs, initiatives for them, and soon it also incorporated their families as well. So the 7th Avenue Mennonite uh, Girls Group evolved into Destiny's Daughters, uh, which it is now, and I can talk more about that as well. Well, yeah, I wonder if you would just kind of keep going and tell us a little bit more of the story, because now you're in Virginia, you're, you're no longer yes. in New York, but you're still working with this ministry. So tell us a little bit about what it looks like today and how it's grown. Yes. So everywhere since that time, um, I actually brought it first to uh, EMU um, in 2003 to 2008 when I served as Director of Multicultural Services. And that ministry at that time looked like college girls um, representing uh, diverse backgrounds, ministering and mentoring some of the younger girls in the Harrisonburg community. But then when I went to Virginia Union University in um, Richmond, Virginia, historically black college, as Director of Counseling Services, my predecessor had a grant that talked about the Healthy Mind, Body, and Spirit grant and wanted a spiritual program. She knew I did a ministry with young girls. She asked if I would bring it there to the university, and I did. Started out as, a, again, a support group for young women, and it expanded from about five girls at that time in 2010, and we have over 150 members right now. Um, so the group at, at, at Virginia Union University still meets on uh, Wednesdays. I got, actually go to Richmond um, every Wednesday as I'm building a team there, but uh, there are about 50 members there at Virginia Union University. And then we started the branch, we call them branches, back to Harlem again. Okay. And my sisters, my two sisters, lead that ministry in Harlem. And then I come there uh, maybe every three months to continue to do some training and workshops there. And then we also have a branch in Washington, D.C. as well, and other branches that are, that are developing. So what's happened with the way that it's grown is because throughout the 25 years of ministry that I've been involved in, um, I've mentored many young women, and they have now decided that they would like to start a Destiny's Daughters branch. Again, the same, looking at the same social disparities, mm -hmm. spiritual formation, servant leadership um, as well, and look at how they can mentor, they can disciple, they can train and teach young women and girls all over. And so we, we have a huge vision that we're looking at doing. We are, besides the local branches that we have, particularly in the urban areas. We are working on developing a retreat center, our headquarters. Oh. And where I live in right now in Dayton, Virginia, we have a house that we're um, considering uh, having as the headquarters for Destiny's Daughters to do retreats, to do workshops, and then um, continue to look at uh, what does that mean for 
the continuation of the ministry and developing that. We look at, I also have incorporated Destiny's Daughters into research that I'm doing uh, through my social work position. Um, and so we have had a, a few articles that have gone out in the Trimble as well, and looking at the mental health, the effects of racism and sexism on the mental health of African American girls. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at focus groups and just really uh, trying to incorporate uh, the ministry into a social justice gospel mm-hmm. uh, and work. So shifting gears a little bit here, uh, back maybe to your work at, at EMU, and in addition to teaching social work, you are also the chair of what used to be called the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, but I think that's got a new name at this point, Melody? Sure. It's actually the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion, um, and so we were a task force at one time, and now we are a standing committee, which it actually gives us more um, longevity and sustainability because that means faculty are required to serve uh, as, to choose in a sense, this committee as one of the many committees that they can serve as a part of their service to the university. Um, And they can be on there for a particular term, one year, two year, three year term. And uh, that gives us, again, longevity um, and also responsibility and support from our provost office. I wonder from that position and the the things that you've gleaned from working in that, if you could sort of cast your gaze onto our our Mennonite higher education today, what are some of the challenges that remain for our institutions as we try to address racial misconduct and injustice and racism in general on our campus and in our structures? So in our particular um, political climate, and even prior to that, of course, but even after, in a sense, Charlottesville, we are looking at how institutions are able to address these issues in a balanced way, but also in a timely manner, what policies are in place. Um, or not in place that we need to review, and how are um, persons of color protected and supported on campus? How, do, how does the institution serve as an advocate uh, for students of color on campus as well? So a few things that we are doing and looking at. Uh, one, we're looking at uh, policies. We're creating, making sure that we have bias reporting policies that we are looking at. Are we in line with the benchmarks for hate crimes and hate language, things that we might might have not addressed in the past or had a policy for, but because these things are more open in the forefront, we are making sure that we are taking the lead on proactive and preventive uh, policies and programs. And so uh, as we're looking at the Mennonite education, uh, we uh, I believe that as the Mennonite Church in general, as we work with our institutions, that we need to be taken to the forefront. We need to be um, really leading. You know, at EMU, we say that we are a college or a university like no other. Well, in that aspect, we need to say like no other and that we will take a stand against social justice. And so because the tension comes because we are tuition, like many Mennonite institutions, are tuition-driven, right? And so we're looking at how do we work with those that are supporting our constituencies, all different groups that may have varying opinions. That is true, but we need to look at, the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion says, if we have a strategic goal, which we do at EMU, that diversity is part of that, then what are the actions that we're taking? What are the strategic goals that are gonna be in place? And so those goals are looking at how do you recruit um, students of color, but also retain them, and that makes a difference within our policy. How do we take in consideration the finan- financial makeup or the hardships or 
uh, what's happening in our financial aid policies with regards to students of color. Um, again, our honors society and what kind of grants and scholarships do we personally give as institutions? Um, are they balanced with regards to racial equity? And then also um, the recruitment and retainment of faculty and staff is difficult because here at EMU, we have increased in our numbers regarding diversity. Uh, diversity is now about 32%, and that includes international students and students um, here born in the United States or citizens of the United States as well. But our faculty and staff diversity um, has not increased in the way that we would want it to. So we have to be intentional about that. And it means in many ways um, not doing business as usual, so looking at different ways of partnering with other places in, in order to recruit. So one thing that um, we have to be creative about that because yes, we, you know, resources may be limited in some ways. One initiative that we're looking at is how do we partner with other universities for adjunct professors? How do we partner, for instance, with Virginia Union University, I still have a very strong tie there. And so uh, we're looking at doing some partnerships in our programs, even in our staff recruitment, and also looking at that as, as one of the feeder schools that may help us to increase diversity on campus, bring a different perspective to our students. Other thing I would just say too is that we're responsible from a political point of view, from a federal law point of view, as well to a legal point of view to tackle the issue of uh, racial disparities and, and crimes and anything else that can we, we really cannot say that there's a, such a separation of church and state and we're a private university. I think sometimes we would maybe hide under that and say, well, that is an outside problem. And, you know, this is not what, this doesn't affect our Mennonite education, but it absolutely does. And so I think people are standing up more, getting involved. Students that are coming from maybe traditional Mennonite perspective um, or culture, they are also getting involved. So how do we, teach those students to be advocates and, and mm -hmm. do some bystanding training with regards to racial injustices. And so through our peace and justice majors, uh, minors, social work, and also um, our clubs as well, getting more involved and more active on campus, um, just to name a few things. Right, right. And I'm reminded as you're talking, you know, I think sometimes people forget that, yes, our Mennonite universities must take reports of racial misconduct. I mean, that's part of Title IX, too. These things Absolutely. must be treated, um, taken very seriously by institutions, and there need to be clear processes in line for responding to that. And, yes. Um, so, Melody, you know, you're talking about some of these systems for Mennonite higher education, and you've also been involved in some of these broader systemic conversations about Mennonite Church USA, too. Particularly, I know I mentioned connecting with you at Hope for the Future, this gathering planned and led by leaders of color in Mennonite Church USA. Yes. What has participating in that space been like for you? And what are your hopes or challenges for Mennonite Church USA as a whole as you think about the work that group is doing? I want to uh, say that I really, um, I've been involved in, in some things prior to Hope for the Future and then this initiative with Hope for the Future. My first response, honestly, is um, a call to lament. My first response is in, in the sense that, you know, we have to acknowledge and lament how um, even our own church, with whether it was intentions that were seen as good at that time um, or not, how our own church, the Mennonite church, has played a role in 
um, in keeping us in a certain space, keeping us uh, behind with regards to moving, moving forward with um, issues of equity um, and justice and issues of power and privilege. How that the Mennonite Church, we have been more protective of our own power and privilege than we have been open to, to share that. And we have a long history of people of color within the Mennonite Church, whether it's from the Latino communities, I know there's a lot of writings and work that's being done and talking about the minority council as well, and then also with AMA, African American Midnight Association, uh, to again, you know, again, again, some of the some of the work that uh, people are doing on a broader level. I would say that I am still hopeful in the, in the work that we're looking at, but we have to look at how do we dismantle these systems that we have. In place that are so strong, and whether or not we as a Mennonite church can actually continue, uh, can we survive with those same structures? My response would be is that we cannot, is that we cannot survive with the same structures that we have in place. That for twofold number one, we should not. Number two, as uh, people are getting more involved in social justice gospel, or they are take, looking at black liberation theology, looking at, uh, looking at things from a womanist uh, lens, which again, looking at feminist theology and womanist and black liberation theology, just looking from different perspectives and that they're calling for the church to do something different. And the younger generation that's coming up, as well as those that are being exposed to uh, different ways of uh, looking at the world um, and responding to these issues in our climate, they are, people are uh, being are not um, having the same response to what is Mennonite and what is Mennonite community, and so therefore, you know, instead of I, I feel very strong about the sacredness in many ways of Anabaptist theology, but not as um, strong as far as Mennonite ethnic culture because I believe that there has been a time and space for that but in, in many ways looking at looking at it from a cultural lens has done more damage to our the future of our Mennonite church than it has in a responded in a positive way um, and so hope for the future is looking at people of color giving voice to people of color giving position and power, which we don't like to talk about many times, to people of color, given a platform for people of color in the Mennonite church, people who've been of color in the Mennonite church, who've been there for years, who have a history, who've shown commitment and dedication, um, and then for people who are welcoming into the Mennonite church that don't represent ethnic um, Mennonite, uh, German, Swiss, or Russian, or whatever it may be as far as background but they are committed to the Anabaptist values and theology. And so how do we get room for that? And I think that um, if we're going to survive, even if we look at our demographics in our country, if we're going to survive as um, a vibrant and as um, a vibrant church and also as a relevant church, then we need to, we need to switch power. We need to share power. We need to uh, restructure. I'm hoping that the Hope for the Future conference moves into that, a restructuring, um, a restructuring. And I think that um, it's easy maybe to go into maybe the separatism and kind of say, well, 
we're going to separate ourselves and we're going to polarize ourselves, and, which I think a little bit of that is happening. But I'm hoping that there will be a core set of people representing all different backgrounds, but definitely a core set of people of color that are, that are still saying, I'm committed to these Anabaptist values, to this Anabaptist lens theology, and building a church that represents the kingdom of God. Hey, I've got a follow-up just listening to what you said there, Melody. I think it might be interesting to some of our listeners. I'm speaking as a, as a white male, and we, we hear the term ally talked about a lot. So w- what would you say to someone like me who, who wants to see justice done and supports uh, the, the efforts that we're moving towards? How can I best be supportive in this process? Absolutely, yeah. Definitely, I think, you know, absolutely we look at ally um, and you know, how the white uh, Mennonite or white community can serve as allies. We also look at this terminology accomplice, you know, being, you know, not just um, a sounding board in some ways for people of color who are struggling to find justice or a place um, within the Mennonite community, but also um, being accomplice to, to make that happen, right? And so we have, we have this idea, we have this goal, and it's like, can you take the lead on it? And not just myself, or can we be shared in the action of it? Um, the action of it. And so I see that a lot, for instance, um, a, a community here called Faith in Action that we have. We're doing some work on that. Um, right now they have a, a focus on criminal justice issues as well, but particularly in racial racial relationships, our, we are partnering with other churches, representing different communities, and also organizations that represent the benefit for African-American people as well. Looking at how, how do white Mennonites take the lead and not wait for a person of color to say, we need to do this. I think that was, that's, that's one of the answers there. So I'll use myself as an example. Um, I've served as director of multiple services. I'm serving in, in this role as diversity and inclusion, which is fine. Um, but one thing that I saw that I, that I knew that I was, there was a growth that was taking place at EMU, when I first came back, we had a conversation, at this time was surrounding you know, our pres- uh, new president and those kind of things. And usually I would be the one in the room to say, don't forget about, you know, again, representing racial, different racial backgrounds, you know, be, don't be inclusive and things like that. Well, I didn't have to say a word. There were white Mennonites, allies, that were speaking on that behalf and saying that we need to look at that. And so it is, I would say, to take the initiative to, in a sense, maybe learn um, not just from people of color, but also from the sources that are out there um, that people can, can do. doesn't mean that we can't go along with the work that people of color are doing and we can't you know, ask questions about that. We can. But there is so much information that is out there and opportunity for trainings, opportunity to get involved. Um, I think I would like to see some of that happen um, even more because myself included, and I heard this at our Hope for the Future conference a little bit as well, um, people are called our burden already with trying to survive in this doomed society or, or survive in white spaces or still maintain the connection to their roots and, and all those different things as well, that many times it can become a burden to have to also educate and also to lead and also to you know, give, um, help other people get a voice. It's, it's a call, it's a challenge, it's a call for white men in the churches to do the work. Um, last thing I'll say on that is I just came from a meeting uh, with Faith in Action and other well, church leaders where um, 
I'm representing from the NAACP and also from EMU Committee on Diversity and Inclusion with that group. I'm not a member of Faith Action, but we were we're working with the Racial Equity Institute out of Durham, North Carolina. They they're doing some training with, with us, and many churches are participating in this. And one thing that one of my colleagues was speaking as well um, was saying that it is time for all white churches, Mennonite churches, to do the work. It is time for us to do the work um, and to actually set out a a sustainable co a cohort of people that are committed to whatever this journey may look like, mm -hmm. but to make it very clear, concise, that these are the trainings that are available. These are the issues from an institutional level uh, to a, a community level to an individual level um, that we are committed to to, to do and to uh, then to let people of color know that we've, we're doing our work, we've done our work, and then how can we incorporate um, some of our initiatives together, strategies together. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm looking for not just an ally in the traditional term of being supportive of my my voice, but I, I want I want people to be um, yeah to have to, to also take the initiative and to be a leader leaders in this issue of social justice. Mm -hmm. And given everything we've talked about during this conversation so far, Melody, uh, on this podcast, we often kind of come back to this word peace that's in our title, Peace Lab, and thinking, you know, we've talked with people a lot about what that word has meant for them or some of the limitations of the ways, especially white Mennonites perhaps have defined that word. So when you think about what peace looks like, what, what would that look like for you? What does that word mean to you? I love looking at this this word peace at a Seventh Avenue Mennonite Church, which is actually now called Affinity Mennonite Church. Mm -hmm. We have a, um, a mural on the side of the church and it has different people in a rainbow t shirts and represent different backgrounds saying, I am peace. So, looking at number one, how do you embody peace yourself, right? And how do you serve as a peace ambassador? So, I consider myself a peace ambassador. I am studying through my work with the sort of justice here in the Center of Justice and Peace Building, so in a graduate uh, certificate in this sort of justice, right? And some of the things that we're looking at, um, there's one book that gave a good definition or I resonated with that was, again, becoming a peace ambassador in the 21st century. And what does that mean? Cultivating peace, um, becoming a 21st century peace ambassador. And one, one um, quote from that um, book that, that kind of resonates with me. It says, an ambassador of peace, an ambassador of peace is someone who recognizes the importance of transforming both inner blockages to peace and those blocking in external relations, cultures and systems that prevent peace in the world. And so looking at peace as a movement, looking at peace as something that is, is action-oriented. And so how do we serve as a peaceful advocates, right? So you're looking at activists, I should say. You're looking at it is not the peace that is saying that we're just going to wait till God or wait till, you know, the church kind of comes to understanding or wait till by and by, those kind of things. It really is being an ambassador, a, a fighter for freedom. And so in our Mennonite, even in our Mennonite context, many times we don't, we rather have the peace that is you know, surreal, submissive, you know, kind of docile and just, you know, not active. My piece is different. My piece, my piece is, I am a, 
a social activist, I'm an advocate, my piece is that I'm an ambassador, I'm going to speak those things that will bring peace to people that are marginalized. Um, and that means speaking up, and that means giving light or shedding light on areas that, that are not peaceful, right? Mm -hmm. And so I challenge, in a sense, our, the peace, our peace stance, and this doesn't have anything to do with, uh, for instance, our issues of nonviolence, that's not a that's not a question. Definitely on the nonviolence, but in even our in our voice, how we're able to communicate um, that this is not a peaceful situation. We don't have peace, yeah. you know, in many communities. And so we have to speak up on that. Um, and that means raising issues that may be conflictual to people's values or ideas of, of even how Christianity is expressed what Christianity looks like um, in communities. I'll go back to Harlem, uh, which is just the basis of, of my ministry, even my theology, uh, you know, theoretical perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we would, uh, our church would be very different in the fact that we went into the streets and we ministered to people, but it wasn't just when I would do that, even with the Seventh Avenue Girls Group with Destiny's Daughters, we would go out to the, the people on the corner, the people who were selling drugs on the corner, the people who were, you know, homeless. So people, and it wasn't just about telling them, yes, Jesus loves you, the love of God. We were saying, yes, Jesus loves you. How can we help you? Is there anything that we can do? You know, whether it is giving out food or whether it is connecting them to a resource, whether it is hearing their story, letting them give voice. Mm -hmm. Went to places that were not peaceful right here in the United States, right here on our corners in urban areas. And we, and we brought peace because we enable people to, to, to give a voice and to express what they needed um, and how, how the love of Christ, using the body of Christ, can help them. Yeah. An embodied peace. A peace embodied peace. Yeah. Melody, I, you've given us so much to think about, uh, but it also feels like we've only scratched the surface. I, I just want to thank you for taking time and let, let's do it again. Okay. Well, I, I think there's a lot more to this conversation we can have in, in the future. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you. I would love to join you again and keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great conversation with Melody Hanna. Uh, I'm always inspired to hear about how these little peace labs around the church, what they bring to life and all the good work that's happening there. So a fantastic conversation. Uh, I know you had a big hand in setting that up because a lot of that is the reach that you have at the Mennonite. You talk to so many people. You have so many good stories about peacemaking across the Mennonite church. And you know, I know we're getting into the giving season here, and a lot of folks want to know how they can support the great work that the Mennonite does. Yes. Well, one clear way that people can support us is by making a gift on Giving Tuesday, which is Tuesday, November 28th, after Thanksgiving. Um, we're actually partnering with Mennonite Disaster Service this year. You all have probably read, if you're reading the Mennonite, you've read a lot about MDS and the work they're doing right now to help with hurricane recovery. Um, they're working in 21 different communities, and our work has been partly to keep work in front of people. And so our two organizations are partnering on Giving Tuesday. If you make a donation on that day, that not only supports our storytelling work, but it supports their relief and recovery efforts. So for every dollar the Mennonite receives on that day, we're going to give 50 cents of that to MDS, and we're hoping that this is a great way to share the love and build support and capacity for both our organizations. So if people are looking for a way to support, that's one clear way to do it and your dollar will kind of go further and reach two organizations on that day. Sounds like a fantastic way to support 
two great causes. Uh, and a way that you can support us here at Peace Lab is wherever you're listening to us, if you're on Stitcher Radio, if you're on iTunes, or, or wherever it may be, give us a good rating. If you give us a five-star rating, the visibility of the podcast, it helps people find it easier and more people get to listen to these great stories of peace that are going on in the church. So if you can do that and help us out and then help out the Mennonite and MDS as part of the giving season that's coming up, we appreciate that and we thank you for listening today. That's right. Always good to talk with you, Jason. And so grateful for Melody too. 